Hello, and welcome to my new podcast, Mic Plus One, where I sit down with industry leaders to discuss the project to product movement. I'm Dr. Mick Kirsten, founder and CEO of Tastop and best-selling author of Project to Product, How to Survive and Thrive in the Age of Digital Disruption with the Flow Framework. I'm delighted to announce that my plus one for the first episode of my podcast series is none other than Gene Kim. We know him as the best-selling author of The Phoenix Project and The Unicorn Project, as well as co-author of The DevOps Handbook. Gene has been a huge inspiration and has helped me tremendously on this entire journey, and I'm just thrilled to have him as the inaugural guest. Gene and I have so much to talk about in this conversation, and we covered so much ground, especially focusing in on the five ideals in the Unicorn Project, that we've actually decided to split this into two episodes. So welcome to part one. Make sure you hit subscribe to be notified when part two is live, and let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to the first Project to Product podcast. For this first season, I'll be speaking with the people who most inspired the Project to Product book and whose ideas and vision have profoundly affected my own views. So it will be no surprise that the guest of the inaugural podcast and root of inspiration for me and for so many others in this community and this industry is Gene Kim. It was a chance meeting with Gene in 2016 during which we <laughs> out on the similarities between software modularity and organizational design that Gene convinced me to write the book. Since that time, he's been a guru, a guide, and a companion on this amazing journey. What I'm most excited about today is Gene sharing with us some of the, his reflections on the Unicorn Project. I'm a huge fan of that book. And I think just as the goal defined the pinnacle of the age of oil and mass production, the last technical revolution, I predict that the Unicorn Project will make its mark on history by becoming the seminal story that defines the beginning of the golden age of software. I was honored to be reviewing the ideas from scratches on a piece of paper that Gene put in front of the bar <laughs> to a manuscript I witnessed getting more refactorings than I think any other Java code base I've seen <laughs> and came out so well at the end. I'm very happy to see how that Unicorn Project is actually blowing away the boundaries of the reach of our collective efforts as exemplified by becoming number two on the Wall Street Journal nonfiction list. Just amazing. So Gene, can you share with us a, a few words on this particular journey? Sure, Mick, it is so fun, as I was just mentioning to you before, uh, to be on this uh, adventure with you together. I will never forget how we met in Las Vegas years ago and how that's uh, triggered and influenced so much of my own thinking. So just briefly, I've been studying high-performing technology organizations since 1999, and that was a journey that started back when I was a CTO and technical founder of a company called Tripwire in the information security space. I was there from uh, 1997 to 2010. and. Uh, one of the biggest surprises in that journey was how that took me into the middle of the DevOps movement, which I think is urgent and important. And all the brainstorming discussion that we've had really, I think, shows how important the DevOps community is, right? To use your language that uh, we love from Dr. Carlotta Perez is that this, I think, will represent the next 50 years of where economic prosperity comes from. Yeah, I wrote the Phoenix Project in uh, 2013, uh, which was heavily influenced and modeled after the goal by Dr. Ali Eliyahu Goldratt. And uh, the Unicorn Project is that story retold, but from the perspective of development instead of operations. Uh, it was just so fun and rewarding to uh, take so many of the learnings that we've had over the last uh, four years and uh, put them into a, a format that I'm hoping uh, will reach a lot of people and uh, help them see the world the, the way that we see it. Exactly. I think the fact that we're already seeing this impact both on the technologists who've been loving and responding to the Unicorn Project, and I think to me what's so important, what the Phoenix Project started, but, but Unicorn Project takes to a whole new level, is the fact that it's changing the way that business executives leading these organizations are thinking by giving them this deep exposure to how technology works in the trenches and the fact that they can no longer ignore it and what 
what the problematic patterns are that have been stuck in for so long, <laughs> what these ideals that emerged through the unicorn project paint as the picture that they need to walk towards. So, Yeah, to in, fact, in fact, there's one thing I would love to maybe uh, mention just because uh, this has been the base of so many of our discussions is that the Unicorn Project is really inspired by and dedicated to all the amazing achievements in the DevOps enterprise community. And so I've been, since 2014, I've been running this conference called the DevOps Enterprise Summit. And we initially, the, the mission was, let's have a conference for horses, by the horses, no unicorns allowed. In other words, uh, these were technology leaders from large, complex organizations, from organizations that have been around for decades or centuries, generating billions of dollars of revenue, successful for decades, and study how they are transforming into software companies. And by the you no know, unicorns allowed, right, the unicorns we were referring to, the fangs, the tech giants, the Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Googles. And we have so many of our friends there, but those are not the stories you want to hear. We want to study the journey of organizations in every industry vertical as they struggle to become software companies, as Dr. Colada Perez says, right, uh, as we enter the turning point the economic prosperity and value creation will not be from the tech giants. It will come from the methods that were pioneered there now being deployed and used in those organizations, fueled not by financial capital and Wall Street and venture capital, but production capital from organizations like Walmart and Starbucks and uh, Nike and Adidas and BMW, right? The best known brands across every industry vertical, using everything that the tech giants have learned and using it to help advance their own missions. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's what, for me, resonates so much, why, why I find this book so important, why I've been recommending it the way I have been, The Unicorn Project, is if the leaders of those organizations don't understand the concepts of the book, I don't know how we're going to do in terms of getting through this turning point, right? We realize, and I think that's why the DevOps Summit became so important, is that it actually spoke to those companies that we needed to get us to this age of economic prosperity. We know from Dr. Perez's work, or her models that I think a lot of us subscribe to, that it is not enough for a handful of fangs and, and unicorns to get us there. We actually need the rest of the economy to come along for the ride, and that's when we'll actually get through into the deployment age of software and digital. So the problem becomes, and the problem that Jeannie and I have been spent so much of, of our discussions focused on, is how can we do that? How can yeah. we help these organizations move forward? We briefly, I think, contemplated that and I actually, Carlotta herself has made this point before, is that, well, sometimes you just need a, a generational change and today's leaders to retire, and then you'll have that turnover and, and then the deployment period will happen. And I think we both have accepted that's not good enough. We actually need today's leaders to learn, to help their teams, to help their organizations move into this golden age. And I think that's exactly what this book will do. And the emergence of these five ideals actually provides a, a mental model for today's leaders to adopt. Yeah, in fact, maybe just to uh, concretize this, uh, and one of the things I've been so dazzled by your research on and that you put into uh, your book, Project to Product, which is a book that I just envy. I mean, envy meaning I wish I were smart enough to have been able to write that book. I mean, it's just, uh, I think it's such a marvelous book. But Dr. Carlotta Perez, she says that there's kind of two distinct phases, right? The installation period versus the deployment period. And so the installation period is fueled by financial capital. That's what causes the boom, you know, wild innovation, uh, the huge value creation in an economic boom followed by a bust, <laughs> right? And then begins the deployment period where it's a period of intense re-regulation of this new technology. And then what should happen is multiple decades of a golden age fueled by production capital, not financial capital. And so I love your example 100 years ago where there were, uh, what, 50 plus 
car startups in Detroit? 300. In Detroit, 300. Over, <laughs> over 300. It's, it blew my mind the first time I heard it back in, I think, 99. And I've been processing that factoid ever since. Well, that's amazing, right? And I think we absolutely see that explosion, this Cambrian explosion happening in technology. And yet the real value wasn't created until after World War II during the deployment period where the automobile in combination with the interstate highway system, in combination with the you know, renewed and uh, wildly different supply chains, right? That's what created the largest period of economic prosperity. And I think that's what DevOps is for, right? Is that uh, there was uh, the tech giants have shown us just dramatically different way of working. Let's call it DevOps. And as much value as the fangs have created, right? The real value will be created by the DevOps enterprise community when every industry vertical is able to exploit these new modes of management, these new modes of production, yeah, I think that is what we're studying within the DevOps enterprise community. Exactly. And I think that, you know, to me, with the, from the Phoenix project, the three ways are just as relevant today and just as part of my daily thought processes as a leader in the technology space as they were when I first read it. But what's been so interesting is the emergence of these, I think, these five ideals, because they are just so much broader in scope. And I think they will resonate so much more profoundly with senior leaders and organizations, but all the way down to the focus, flow, and joy of the individual contributor, of the great developer, the great designer, the great admin. So, Gene, can you take us through just the, the birth of these ideals? I mean, each one of them, I think, I reread them myself, even though you know I've, I've been paying attention to them closely since their genesis. Can you take us through these, take us through some of the motivation where they came from? I have a sense for the insane volume of input and feedback and learning that you've processed across what leaders in DevOps have been doing for the course of the last decade. So it's, it's fascinating that these are the five. It's amazing how I think profound they are and how long lasting they will be. I think they will take us through these next <laughs> uh, 50 years. So uh, if you could just give us a perspective of where they came from, how you selected them, and, and then just you know, maybe some examples of, of, of how people be putting them into practice. I think from the very beginning, the vision of the Unicorn Project was to paint in the beginning the contrast of like how even the best, most incredibly talented and savvy developers can do nothing you know, if they're stranded in this tundra of technical debt, right? Mm-hmm. And so for you know, two and a half years, I was writing, and uh, you and I were in a bar uh, in Detroit, Michigan, uh, right before the, uh, we're going to meet with Chris O'Malley, the CEO of CompuWare. And I, <laughs> I mentioned to you, but, you, know, you asked, how are things going? And I'm like, oh, gosh, not so good. And described how I had written 130,000 words for the Unicorn Project, and uh, I had uh, confessed to you both, like, I don't know what it says. <laughs> like, I don't know what the point is. It's just a big pile of words. And uh, so that was a terrible moment, right? I mean, that was after two and a half years of work, right? Like, uh, I thought it was going to be better than this. So, but over the next 24 hours, you know, was when the, the five ideals were born, just out of all that, that amazing day we spent during the Gembo Walk that you wrote about in that great blog post uh, with uh, Chris O'Malley and CompuWare. And so the five ideals really became the focus of the book. And then the next step was so obvious, right? Is that everything that didn't deal with the five ideals, delete, <laughs> right? And so I'll just say what the five ideals are. And uh, I'd love for us to go through them one by one and just talk about the origins of it and concrete examples of it. Does that work for you, Nick? That sounds great. The first ideal is locality and simplicity. So the notion is that you know in the ideal, we want developers and development teams to be able to get what they need done by making changes in one place, right? one file, one module, one application, right? one container or whatever, right? as opposed to scattered or splattered across the organization where you need 
scores of people, scores of teams to have to communicate, coordinate, and marshal. And so you and I were talking about the lunch factor, right? It's like how many, in order to get something done, how many people do you need to take out the lunch to make it happen? Is it the Amazon ideal of the two pizza team? Or is it, uh, do you have to take out the entire building to lunch, right? So that's uh, locality and simplicity. So uh, the ideal is really low decoupled architectures where small teams can independently develop, test, and deploy value to customers. So the second ideal... Uh, oh, Dan, can, we, oh, yeah. can we pause on that one just for a moment? Because this, I think it's worded so so concisely. I think this is one of them, to me, one of the most profound statements to guide every digital transformation out there, every DevOps deployment, every attempt at scaling <laughs> Agile is... If you don't have this, in my view, you're just not succeeding. And there's symptoms of it at every level in the organization. So I think you've been studying in this very anthropological way the symptoms of lack of locality and lack of simplicity in organizations, right? And and the principles of DevOps are a way to get through that. But I came at it from a very different point of view where I think for a lot of us who've had the you know the joy of coding and yeah. being productive and building super cool apps and user experiences for ourselves, for our colleagues, for a company, for an open source community, we know what locality and simplicity looks like. And I think we know that when we have that locality and simplicity, our productivity is a hundred x, a thousand x than when we don't. And I think your observations that resonated so much with me when I first entered the, the DevOps enterprise community was that in these large organizations, it's just not there. The frustrations that people uh, feel, the stories that we hear are just getting in the way of, of any kind of productivity, any kind <laughs> of... So yet we have these amazing examples, be it from our own ex- personal experiences, uh, from organizations that have somehow a scale managed to get through this, like some of the tech giants who actually have this alignment, this locality and simplicity between their organizational structure, their software architecture, and what they deliver to customers, right? Their products, their value streams, and so on. So can you take us a little bit more on this one, just a little deeper on why you think this heading towards this ideal? Are you really, to me, using this ideal as a test on whether you're on the right track or not? Um, Understanding it from your teams, from your leadership, from the organization, why do you make this the first? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) that's such a good question. So part of the what informed this was uh, the state of DevOps report. So for six years, I've been able to work with Dr. Nicole Forsgren and Jez Humble on the, the state of DevOps report. So that's a cross-population study that spans over 30,000 respondents over six years. And what we found, and so we know what high performance looks like. You know, we know that in high performers, they can go from code that's ready to code that's in production, creating value for customers in one hour or less. You know, ideally, minutes, <laughs> certainly no more than an hour. And in lower performers, right, it can take weeks, months, or even quarters to get into production, right? I mean, you have to deal with infrastructure teams and environment teams and test teams and security reviews and architecture review boards and steering committees. And, and oh, if, if it involves more than one team, then you have to like schedule it with 15 other teams, right? And so all of that is like the opposite of uh, what we want to be doing, right? And so one of the key findings out of the state of DevOps report was uh, sort of the top predictor one of the top predictors of performance was architecture. To what degree can teams make large-scale changes to their parts of the system without permission from anyone else? Can they do their work without fine-grained communication with people outside of their team? <laughs> can they do testing on demand without the use of a secure integrated test environment? Right, And if they can do that, well, then they can do deployments independently of everybody else. And that is so tragically different than what we find in you know so many organizations that we study uh, in the DevOps enterprise community, you know, where they are liberating 
organizations from that, where you know they're they're creating the right architectures and technical practices and cultural norms that allow teams to be able to work independently, right? They can separate themselves from the hairball of everything else. And you know, when everything is entangled together, when you don't have locality, when you don't have simplicity, you just can't get anything done. And I think one of the statistics that we look at uh, was that McKinsey study that said out of the trillion dollars spent on digital transformation, like $850 million was basically wasted, no monetary value created. <laughs> and so I think we attribute that to this problem, right? Where Money is not the problem, right? It's, it's that ability to work independently that's a problem. I mean, does that resonate with you, Mick? Absolutely. And then, you know, this is, it's that waste is that just the amount of desire and investment in transforming that's out there, that's wasted, that exactly that, that McKinsey study just was yet another example of versus the fact that you can actually, we've got a model here, right? Is yeah. If you've got locality and simplicity, which as you've demonstrated, I think Gene in the state of DevOps studies and so on, it can actually be tested. So if you're undergoing this large little transformation and your locality and simplicity are not improving, you're just there's no way you're on track. And I think what's so profound about this one is, is anyone in leadership asking that question? Is Has our locality and simplicity improved for making changes? Of course, everyone understands there's problems with silos and so on, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's kind of the negatives. Are you headed towards better locality and simplicity for your changes? And I think, again, the, the key thing with this one is it spans both the organizational structure and the technological infrastructure and software architecture, right? You've got one test, one way of technologists and business leaders thinking about whether they're they're progressing in the right direction or not. It just struck me that nobody was asking this question, right? Whereas it's such an obvious question that the organizations who, as the last report pointed out, are pulling even further ahead are actually heading in this direction quickly. Yeah, I think what is so amazing and that uh, we, I think uh, we just uh, we spent so many hours discovering and, and uh, concretizing is the level of investment that the tech giants have made to enable developer productivity, to enable locality and simplicity. So it's not just about code. uh, It's about data too. I love this orthogonal problem of like how difficult is it to get data (laughs) that we need, you know, from wherever it resides, you know, which is often in systems of records or uh, data warehouses to where it needs to go, which is in the hands of the development teams, in the hands of the business people so that they can use the data, manipulate the data, whatever, you know, in the ideal, it should take, it should be available on demand, right? In worst cases, right, it takes weeks, months, or quarters <laughs> to get, you know, integration set up so that you can actually get the data that you need. So I love that locality and simplicity apply to the, the duality of code and data. So, uh, right. So the whole reason that Kafka was created was to solve a problem at LinkedIn where you know, they could not get the data from where it resided to where it needed to go. And uh, that led to uh, uh, now an entire market category around you know, next generation message buses. I love that Optum and Adidas, they're all creating these internal data platforms to fully empower people to get the data they need. And that, that's a statistic of somewhere between 30 and 50% of company employees use or manipulate data in their daily work. I mean, it just shows that this is a bigger problem than even code. Uh, that's such a great example um, is, is that, you know, because we've got tons of leaders out there wondering like, what, well, why is this Kafka thing? Why is event-based so important? Why does everyone keep talking about it in our company, right? This, I've, I've heard this at banks going right up to, you know, close to the CEO. This is actually your answer because it brings you significantly in this direction and you all you know how important your customer data is and how important it is to be able to operate on that data with code and innovate around that data with code and learn from that data with, with AI and so on. So 
Excellent. Oh, in fact, just to make that very concrete. So what, what is the problem? In order to get and retrieve the data, it takes six to nine months to get the integration set up between this new system and this system where the data resides, <laughs> right? And the interfaces often break and whatever, right? So Kafka creates a way to decouple those things together so that those teams can genuinely work independently. I mean, I think that is uh, what is so what is making so many organizations gravitate towards this. And it uh, is this grandest decoupling it is a huge level of decoupling that it enables. Yeah, exactly. And it gets you thinking the right way. Once you're doing that decoupling, you, of course, the way you think about your team structures changes because in the end, you want that independence. You want to build independence. You want the ability for them to, to innovate and to, to work with that data independently. And you know, when I was realizing, I think both of us have a sense of just how bad the state of this is in organizations <laughs> today. And that, that was one of the main reasons I've been pushing so hard on having these companies identify their product value streams and allow them to, you know, to basically function independently because at least then you're localizing kind of the customer pool, the business need as a product, and then allowing that architecture, the, you know, the data supporting it and the data pipeline supporting it. And of course the teams, the many teams often working on it to actually build <laughs> locality. It's only a step, but it's a start. So. so one of the comments that you gave in the manuscript that, I mean, I, it was such an aha moment that actually caused the, the whole point to be elevated. You had this one quote uh, the middle of the way through the book is like, wow, like they are dealing with the worst case architecture <laughs> possible for like data hub or whatever, right? And just showing that for the work they needed to get done, they couldn't have engineered a worse system that made life more difficult. And, and I think that is the aha moment was the job of architecture is to make people's work easy, right? To improve flow. Uh, I'd love to sort of double confirm with you, right? That the notion of the lunch factor to get something that you want done, done, how many people do you need to take out to lunch, right? Is that a good measure of uh, locality and simplicity? Yeah, so Gene, we came up with that in <laughs> all of 2016, our first, yep. <laughs> first, our first conversation. I have brought it up countless times. I think it, it still holds true, right? Is the higher the lunch factor, the worse your locality and simplicity, yep. and the less you know, focus and productivity and joy for any developer trying to innovate and make a change. And it's not that it's easy, right? Like we end up <laughs> with, and I think part of it's the legacy of these enterprise architectures that have been you know, evolved around kind of elegance and this top-down thinking rather than the locality and simplicity developers need to add meaningful features. And so I think it's absolutely been validated in everything I've seen. Yeah, I so much remember that uh, that meeting uh, when we first met. And, and I think that kind of helped me kind of reframe what that Amazon two pizza team is all about, that famous Jeff Bezos memo that said, you know, the only way that teams will communicate with each other is through APIs. That was a creation of these hard boundaries that enforced locality, right? Uh, so that two pizza teams, the teams that can be fed sufficiently with only two pizzas can actually do what they need done without communicating and coordinating and marshalling and emailing other teams, right? That's kind of, I think, the Amazonian ideal. Exactly. I think that, that brings us to the now the second ideal, right? Because those, those teams that have that, they can stay in the flow of their work. They can be yeah. productive. They can innovate without, again, taking 18 people out to lunch. So the first ideal for me, it, it is personally for me, it, it's the most profound. The second ideal, so the first one is locality and simplicity. The second one of focus, flow, flow and joy is actually my personal favorite. Yeah. It resonates so much with me with things I've struggled with, within as an individual contributor, as a member of a team, as a leader. And I think... We've seen such a departure from the kind of, for, again, for those of us who've seen it, the kind of productivity that you get when, when you've got that locality, that simplicity, and you can focus on your work and you can build great things. In the end, yeah. we want to deliver great things for the people that we care for, for our customers, for our team members, and, and so on. 
And I realized this was getting, this is like now 20 years ago, so bad in the world of basically enterprise Java and open source. I actually dedicated a decade of my <laughs> career of trying to make things a bit easier for developers um, in terms of staying in the flow. I was, I think like many, um, inspired by the work of Mihaly, uh, Mihaly, who wrote the book Flow on how we have these optimal psychological experiences. And it was really from the experience I had that, that you've had as well, Gene, of, of just how amazing it is to be building great stuff and just be you know, writing amazing code and seeing it working uh, rather than you know, wiring 18 different components and CI <laughs> and pipelines together. So this works at the individual level where you want individuals in the flow, you want teams in the flow, you want flow across the organization. So can you say a bit more about this one? Because I think it's, it feels softer, but I think it's just so, so important. Absolutely. And this is another one that was so much influenced by our conversation and interactions. Yeah. So the second ideal is focus, flow, and join. I think these are very much the outcomes, uh, as you said, right? When you have sufficient locality and simplicity, it means that you can get the work that you want done, done. You're solving the problem that you want to solve and you're not having to deal with things that you don't want to deal with, right? Uh, So just as a brief aside, right? uh, I fall in love with functional programming that has caused me to change how I think about myself. For 25 years, I self-identified as an ops person. That was despite getting my graduate degree in compiler design and uh, high-speed networking. And I think I gravitated to that just because I think it was, it was my observation that ops were where the saves were made. Ops saved the customers from terrible developers who didn't do enough testing and blew everything up in production. It was ops <laughs> who protected data and saved us from ineffective security people. But uh, having learned closure and functional programming, it really introduced the joy of programming back into my life and made me realize and experience again the joy of solving problems I wanted to solve. Just like Dr. Cheek Sentman Holly said, is enjoyment, right? Is that doesn't mean pleasure, right? There's a joy that we get from doing the work that we love. And um, what I found was that there are certain things that I used to enjoy doing that I now despise, like everything outside my application, connecting to anything, especially databases, because it would take me a week. Secrets management, YAML, patching, like everything dealing with infrastructure is curious to me how much I used to enjoy doing that a decade ago and how much I despise it now because it breaks my sense of flow and it, it detracts from the work I want to do. So it just amplifies how important it is to create these platforms that allow developers to exert their best energies on solving the business problem, you know, creating the feature they want to create and not having to deal with infrastructure or the job of infrastructure operations to put their expertise into the platforms to make developers productive and hide the messy world around them. And so, yeah, does that resonate with you, Mick? Oh, absolutely. It's actually, and when I first, you know, one of our, our colleagues, Gene, um, actually a close friend of mine, Rod Johnson, when I, when I first met him, <laughs> you know, when he was, I said, you know, so how did you, start working on the Spring Framework. And he said he had so much experience working with Enterprise Java and JTV at that point. It's like, if the world realized how much time developers waste on useless rebuilding useless infrastructure and wiring things together versus getting anything meaningful and creative done, you know, <laughs> I think we would all fall over. So there is this profound aspect to this, because again, it feels softer, you know, these words of flow and joy. But one thing that's that's been two quick stories, one thing that's been really shocking to me about the flow framework deployments and presenting, say, to a CFO of a Fortune 100 company, this flow framework thing, which has this kind of odd metric on it, which took me a while to, to wrap, you know, mm. to add to it, of happiness, right? Is that you actually need to measure the happiness of the people working on your value stream. And that, to me, was actually came from the work of Carlos Baldwin at Harvard Business School, because she and Dan Sturdivant measured 
tangled architectures, so lack of first ideal, and how that had an impact on employees and actually found a correlation between tangled architecture, so lack of locality and simplicity, and people quitting. And guess what? CFOs kind of care when yeah. because they know how long and how much it takes to onboard people and how difficult it is to find great people um, when there's all these tech companies and startups and out there. So I think this is what's fascinating about this is this is absolutely measurable. And that, you know, for me, the thing that just blew me away in my within my own organization when we started measuring employee happiness through employee net promoter score. So basically, we have to kind of take one step back here is that employee happiness and engagement comes from a feeling of focus and flow and joy. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. that's where Chick Halley's work is, I think, is, is so key. That's, that's what makes professionals happy is when they're doing great creative work. Right. It's very different than if we go back and age a technological revolution, because this is not manufacturing. This is creative work. So if you're not in the flow, you're not happy. You're considering another job, which is why, again, I think this the second ideal is so, so, so important. We started measuring it at TaskDot and we had always done employee net promoter score surveys as across the organization. And how frequently? Uh, quarterly. Quarterly. Yep. And been doing this for, for many, many years, better part of almost the entire decade. And it dawned on me as you know, <laughs> the early days of the flow framework is like, wait a second, why are we just measuring this for silos? Because we were measuring, well, how happy are the business development people? How happy are developers? How happy are product managers? How, how happy are the operations people? Why are we not have, measuring this according to the first ideal of actually how we're delivering customer value through our product value streams? We started doing that. And then we realized that what would happen is we had an individual who was extremely talented, but who was actually basically not quite aligned. He was more about the architecture of the software than about customer value delivery, whereas a lot of the other organization was really about delivering customer value. We could see as we moved this person between different product value streams that the happiness went down (laughs) over the course of three quarters. And this was a pretty profound learning for me because he was amazing as this person was, given the organization that we were, he was impacting people's focus, flow, flow, and joy, right? And it was actually had to do with the architectures that were being created, not being aligned to the, where the business was headed and so on. But couple, these two things coupled, the fact that you can actually measure them and use that to steer how your organization evolves on what people you put in what roles is, to me, it was, it was just extremely profound. And just to maybe amplify that point, because that was also an aha moment for me, right? Is you measure by department, right? All the developers, all the QA people, all the operations people, right? You end up with some scores and there might be, you know, you might conclude some things from it. But then if you divide, if you have two products and you divide, you just split the population to product A and product B and then measure the value street happiness of those people across the silos. My recollection was that that actually gave a totally different story that said, People on product A are much happier than product B, and that actually allowed you to diagnose what was going wrong. And I think that was that was also a very profound aha moment because that very much reminded me of another finding from the State of DevOps report was that high performers, not only do they have all these great technical metrics around code deployment, lead time, change success rate, mean time to prepare, deployment frequency, but they also were twice as likely to exceed profitability, market share, and productivity goals. They're twice as likely to recommend their teams as great places to work to their friends and colleagues as measured by the employee number one score. And so, yeah, it, it, uh, when I heard that story from you, uh, I was like, of course, <laughs> right? That totally makes sense. And so when you have locality and simplicity, 
that uh, does allow for focus, flow, and joy that is measured, that can be measured through things like employment, net promoter score. And if I can just jump ahead a little bit, I think the reason why we were dazzled by so many things that Chris O'Malley said is that he gave another reinforcing data point around this, which is that with the reason why CFOs care about engagement and retention is that they understand that, I'll just quote him, right? That he said there are three metrics that matter, customer satisfaction, employee engagement, and cash flow. Mm-hmm. And if you get those three things right, all the other right things will happen by themselves, right? Uh, so why is that? Do we understand what customers want and are we delivering it to them? Do we have a, a workforce that's engaged, enjoying the work they do, that is actually cares about making those customers happy? And then are we managing our business in a way that, that we don't run out of cash? And yeah, I think that for me, that was a huge piece of the puzzle of why is it that CFOs and senior leaders you know, care about employee happiness and how that can be a bridge to help us get them on board to help with things that we care about. Exactly. And I think the key thing I, I want to make sure people are getting from this is that without an organization commitment to this ideal, it doesn't matter how many people you hire. It doesn't matter what the budgets are. It doesn't matter which, you know, how many swaths of consultants you've brought in for the transformation. <laughs> you can't become a software innovator without an organization commitment to this. Yeah, that's, that's a fascinating hypothesis. I mean, and so I think if I can just put a point on this, you're saying that for the organizations that collectively spend a trillion dollars on digital transformation and have nothing to show for it, the $850 million of waste, you're hypothesizing that if they had just merely asked, you know, are employees happier? <laughs> that would have been a red flag that something is not working. Is that exactly. what you're saying? No, I think that this is, this is why, again, I thought it was odd when I was doing it, but I think this is a top level company metric. It's not, it's not that the metric will give you the exact answer because then you have to have conversations with people and the end, these are people with, with personalities and psychological needs. But if there's not a commitment from the organization to focus flow and joy of the individual contributors of the teams, no, I, I do not believe those organizations will actually succeed. And that means it needs to be measured along with budgets and, and other things. I think this, is, this ideal is, is absolutely a top-level thing for the CEO of every organization. And again, the problem is it's different for software than it is for manufacturing or than it is for agencies or, or call centers, right? Yeah. If Flow, and this is documented and has been researched thoroughly, if your developers, if your designers, if your testers and your other IT practitioners are not in the flow of their work, you're not delivering business results the way you think you are. It is a creative discipline. It's not a, a manufacturing discipline. That was a fascinating discussion and one that's going to be continued in the next episode. This was the first part of my Mic Plus One podcast with Gene Kim. And part two has some even more amazing content and Gene's thoughts about the five ideals. So a huge thank you to Gene for sitting down with us and allowing you all to hear his thought processes and how these things were created and came to be. If you want to continue the discussion with us, don't forget to subscribe and join us again in two weeks. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave a review and follow along on Mick underscore person on Twitter or the hashtag Mick plus one and get the latest podcast updates. Gene's handle is at Kim if you want to reach out to him directly. Search for Project to Product to get the book. And remember that all author proceeds go to supporting women in technology. Until next time, thank you. Thank you.